Welcome to the Sound Effect Podcast, the podcast about sound effects. My name is Espion Andersen, and I'm the founder of asoundeffect.com. David Lynch haunting prequel to the legendary Twin Peaks series, Fire Walk With Me, turns 30 this year. I'm a big fan of the film and a huge Twin Peaks fan in general, so I'm very excited to share the story behind the influential sound of the film, as well as the Twin Peaks pilot episode. In our brand new A Sound Effect interview with award-winning supervising sound editor and sound designer Doc Murray, Jennifer Walton talks with him about the sound of the Twin Peaks series pilot and how that process influenced their approach to the sound on the Fire Walk With Me film. They also discuss how the technology at the time played a role in their approach to the sound, working with David Lynch, the film's impact on the use of sound in filmmaking, and how the process of Fire Walk With Me changed Murray as a sound designer. They also dive into the sound for specific scenes and much more. Hope you enjoyed the interview. And before we get to that, let's hear some of the latest releases from the independent sound community. Ultrasonic Insects by Nicolas Tito features ultrasonic recordings of insects from both France and Madagascar. Dark Magic by Penguin Grenade gives you everything you need to create dark magic spells and dynamic energies. Urban Decay by Gladestock Studios gives you 16 designed surround ambiences for empty urban spaces. Torch Burning Fire by Ivo Visage Sound Libraries was made by recording a burning torch in anechoic and echoic spaces. Blimp Airship by Sound of Essen is a real rarity. Recordings of a rare blimp, including engines, some specifics, and a flyby. Hey, Jennifer Walden for a sound effect here with Emmy and MPSE award-winning supervising sound editor, sound designer, Doug Murray to talk about his work with filmmaker David Lynch on the film Fire Walk With Me, which was released 30 years ago, back in 1992. Hey, Doug, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Jenny. It's great to talk to you. I'm so glad to talk to you about this film. You know, it's funny because this film initially had very panned reviews from critics and it wasn't a box office hit. I know. You know, I wonder if that's because it's a continuation of the Twin Peaks TV show. And so, you know, some of the same soap opera hallmarks uh, are there and they don't really translate so well from the small screen to the big screen. Um, but Lynch, you know, he created this unique nightmare reality for Twin Peaks and that certainly continues into the film. Um, you know, and it's a tragic story. It's so disturbing. I mean, you have this young woman who endured the worst harms imaginable at the hands of her own father. It's terribly sad. Yeah. Oh, it's so sad. It's heartbreaking. It's a topic that is, uh, you know, it's kind of incest and sexual abuse is at the heart of the mystery. And it's very powerfully done. I think Twin Peaks, a lot of it was kind of hammed up, the performances, and the, they were using a kind of soap opera style at the same time as it was a David Lynch movie at heart. The film seems not like, say, Blue Velvet or Elephant Man, which have more naturalistic performances and more convincing performances. But this film, many of the supporting characters are 
two-dimensional instead of three-dimensional. And I think that was yeah. a carryover from the series. And it worked on a small screen in a weekly format, but it didn't translate as well to a feature film, I think. And so that turned people off. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Uh, you know, I never thought of this film as a film in its own right, but more of an extension of the TV show. So, you know, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but to me, that kind of justifies the way the actors perform these characters. I think that's true. And I think, you know, it's in a funny space between the TV show and a standalone movie. It came out a couple of years after the show had been canceled and it was released as a feature film. And a lot of people probably went to see it because they wanted to get more of the TV show. But I think a lot of people just went along to see the next David Lynch feature film. So it's a fine line, you know. In some ways, to me, they work against each other. And the film isn't entirely successful as a feature film because of the kind of cardboard characters that we see so often in the film. Um, I don't know. It's it's kitschy. It's camp. Yeah. But then it's so passionate and, and emotionally true. The kind of pain that she's going through is visceral. That part works incredibly. Incredibly well, I think. Yeah, definitely. So you actually worked on the pilot for the Twin Peaks series back in 1989. How did that prepare you for working on this film? Like going into the film, did you have a preconceived idea of what David Lynch might want based on what you had done for the show? Uh, to some extent. I mean, the pilot had a TV pilot budget that was set by ABC who had commissioned the pilot. So, you know, we had like one week to mix it and we had three weeks or four weeks or something to do all the sound editing and mixing. It was really absurdly short. So we assembled an amazing team for that. First of all, I should say that David asked Alan Splett to do the sound for it, but Alan couldn't because he was working on a film. I think it was called Winter People. So he was already committed to doing that. It was the first of David Lynch's projects that Alan didn't do the sound for. And Alan asked me if I would do it. And I had never worked for Alan, but I had worked at the Saul Zanz Film Center and Alan pointed David at me and David hired me based on that. So I met with David in LA and we talked about the requirements for the pilot. And I went back and we had an amazing crew and everybody did a great job. And we put that together I think we had a brief dialogue premix, and then we had five days to mix it. But the facility gave, and we all gave David two extra days. So we worked through the weekend. So we worked seven days. And that last day, we literally worked until Alan showed up to start mixing Winter People. And we had to leave. So it was uh, <laughs> kind of crazy. We all were so tired with having worked, I don't know, 36 hours straight or something on that last day. Wow. So at the very end, we left. And instead of doing a print master from the stems, we had no time to do that on the stage. So we gave it to the transfer room operator with instructions to combine the stems into a stereo printmaster for the ABC review of the pilot so they could decide whether to give it a green light or not. So that happened. We all went home to bed and a much-deserved sleep. And on Monday during the day, the printmaster was made in the transfer room by the transfer room operator without anybody there from the movie. And then it was shipped to LA because we were like cutting it so fine. And they laid it back on the video and David previewed it and he went ballistic because it was so quiet. The uh, transfer room operator had reduced the volume on everything because he had never made a printmaster before. And with a printmaster, when you're combining, I don't know, 16 tracks or something, you turn them all down so that you don't overload the recording. So he did that because he didn't realize that they were supposed to be transferred at full volume straight across because they were mixed accordingly. So anyway, the ABC executives heard the track very quiet and noisy because when they turned it up, you know, the noise went up. And so I remember being... On the phone call, I was in the room with the head of the studio on speakerphone with David, just so pissed off. Oh, no. They approved the film anyway, in spite of that. Yeah. But he was so angry that we thought we'd never see him again. So oh, he didn't want to work with Mark Berger again, who was the mixer who was in charge, which was, I think, a mistake in that Mark did such a great job during the mix. I, I don't know. Anyway, but he did come back, which was great. So... 
That show was a really interesting show to work on for me. That was the first time I worked with David Lynch. It was the first time I'd worked with a director of his stature. But it was so pressed for time that he kind of just went along with what we had done. There was very little redoing anything during the mix. We didn't have time for that. Very occasionally, we added a sound or two that hadn't already been there. But it was very much what we had already prepared in advance, according to his spotting notes. So your question was, was it the same? I kind of expected it to be a bit more the same, but it wasn't. As I said on the pilot, we kind of prepared everything according to the notes, and I tried to channel Alan Splett's sensibilities and Blue Velvet mix, which I love so much, and make the film and the pilot be in that vein. And and then when we got the Firewalk With Me gig, and I went down and we spotted the film, and I came back and I figured it was going to be much the same. We had more time to cut and mix, so we did a more elaborate job. And having worked with David, I knew it more firsthand, what he liked and so on. And then when he arrived for the mix, he wanted to explore every scene as though what we had cut was just one option and together come up with the sound design for each scene. And so we just picked our way through the film. We had like three weeks to mix it or something like that. And so he would play what we had done and he'd say, okay, well, let's try something like what you did in the scene in the last reel, uh, you know, or whatever. And, And a lot of it was made up on the spot from the material we had prepared but in new combinations. And the music was treated in much the same way. So it was a very different experience. And that was the central experience for me and for everyone on the film in the mix. He said it was like he was in a painting studio and he was making a painting. And we had prepared the paints. And he was making the painting. And that it was the most fun part of making a film was this part, because it's when you kind of brought it all together and that he wanted to be as involved with that part as possible, personally. So not to just like mix in the stuff we had prepared already for him, but rather examine every element and make new elements on the spot. Yeah, and that's been one of his core philosophies when it comes to sound, right? That the sound designer isn't someone who just makes sound effects. It's having like complete creative control over the entire soundtrack, like uh, music, dialogue, and the way that everything plays together. So I had done this interview with Ron Eng and Dean Hurley on the sound of Twin Peaks, The Return. And in that interview, they said to David, the sound designer is essentially the director of the soundtrack, which is what he is on all of his films. right? Yeah, totally. So David views sound design not as specifically designing unique sound effects, but as the design of the entire sound experience for the film. Um, And so, you know, was that his philosophy on Fire Walk With Me as well? Like he really wanted to be hands-on with the sound of this, right? Yes. Uh, So I'll tell you a couple interesting things apropos of that observation, which is uh, on the pilot, there was a score that had been prepared and we had three mixers on the film, Mark Berger doing dialogue. We had Richard Beggs doing the music and we had David Parker doing sound effects, which is amazing for a TV pilot. But anyway, very tragically, Richard Beggs' daughter had died in a car accident a week or two earlier. It might have been a bit longer than that, but it was very recent. He arrived at the mix and we started the final mix and the first scene in the movie, we see a dead body of a young woman. And then in the next scene, we go to the school and one of the shots is a long tracking shot down the hallway, a dolly into a trophy case with a portrait of Laura Palmer as the homecoming queen with amazingly dramatic and emotional music about the tragic loss of this girl. And Richard just couldn't handle it. You know, it was too close to his own grief. So he couldn't continue working on the film. So we, of course, said, we totally understand. It makes sense that you should not be here right Mm -hmm. now. Don't put yourself through this. And so then he left and we were sitting around thinking, okay, now what do we do? And Mark suggested, Mark Berger suggested that David 
be the music mixer and that he take over that role on the film. And David did, and he grew into the role <laughs> very quickly and loved it. And he has been, apparently, I've, from what I understand, he's been the music mixer on everything he's done since. So he was very involved in the sound production for the pilot because of that, you know, I mean, hands on. But he was not as involved with the sound effects because he didn't have time. We didn't have any time for that. You know, obviously he was the director and he'd say, I want more frogs or I want less wind or whatever, you know, but he didn't get involved with like, can we slow those frogs down? And maybe what if we tried playing them backwards or something, which is not the kind of thing he would say on Firewalk with me all the time. Like the whole day was like, yeah, that's such a cool sound. Let's slow it down a little bit and see how that works. Oh, yeah, maybe we should start it a little earlier now. And, and what if we had it go out by a reverse of that? And we got down into the weeds with David. And so in my limited experience working with him, that started on the pilot and it fully flourished during the Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me mix. He was totally involved with every part of the sound, including mixing the music. That's amazing. And, you know, being a sound designer yourself, what was that like for you to have a director come in and like want to get so down into the weeds of the sound design and you know, be so involved with it. I'm, I can't imagine anything more rewarding than having the director be that excited about what is my job to want to get in there and roll up his sleeves and work right beside me and work together so closely with such an amazing creative genius as David Lynch. I mean, I just totally dug it. It was one of, if not the best experiences I've ever had working on a film mix. And how did you prepare for working that way? Did you, you know, show up with like everything you could gather? Because we're talking about <laughs> early 1992, right? Uh, is, that, is that when you guys started working on this? Uh, I think we may have started at the end of 91. It went to Cannes in 92, I guess. And so that was the deadline and we worked right up to Cannes, and then he went to Cannes with it, at where it was booed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he showed the film to the guy who was the head of the Cannes Film Festival, who came to L.A., and we kind of did a rush through, maybe, and did a, a mix of the whole film. I guess we had thought we had finished the film, and then the French head of Cannes came to see the film, because it was going to be in competition, I think. And he he didn't like it. And he gave David notes on the film. And David did some of those notes. I mean, I think David didn't have a lot of feedback up to that point. He never does, you know, audience screenings or anything. He made the film on his own, according to his imagination of what it should be like. And we finished the film. And it was very, it was longer than it is now. And it was much more violent at the end during the murder of Laura Palmer by her father. Sorry, spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully people have seen it. They've had 30 years, right? Yeah, so. yeah, that's ample time, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was brutally violent, the murder scene, and much more sound effects driven. And it was much longer. There was a lot of stuff with Chris Isaac. There was a lot more David Bowie stuff. And back in Philadelphia, there was, they probably cut, I don't know, half an hour out of that kind of stuff and, and a few minutes at the end too. It is still kind of two movies in a way. You know, you get the intro and we don't see Laura or Agent Cooper at all for, I don't know, half an hour or more. And then it's all about Teresa Banks and what's happening in Philadelphia. And then we cut to like a year later and we're in Twin Peaks land. And it's like two movies almost. Yeah, They do obviously come together. But I think what he decided to do was literally only use the part of the first part that was necessary to lead into the second part, as opposed to all of its own developments that had been there, you know, around the trailer park and so many scenes, many of which were really great. But uh, I think you can see extras of deleted scenes on some Blu-ray volume that was released at some point. But they used to be part of the film. And the, as I said, the ending used to be much more violent. 
he changed those before the screening at Cannes based on the input he had gotten, and we remixed it. And I was very disappointed that my incredibly brutal scene of the father murdering his daughter, all those sound effects ended up going away. But in the end, I think the film is much more successful as a film because of those changes. As we both said, the film is pretty emotionally transformative at the end. It's so tragically passionate. And through the use of music and the wind sounds and the amazing images of her and the Red Room and the angel and all that stuff just transports you to another place and you just feel so powerfully for her. That was not the case previously, I don't think. Um, anyway, so how do we get ready? In 1989, everything was cut on mag. It was all done analog on film, and that's very labor-intensive. And it's very hard to change things during the mix. You can. You say, I don't like the way the wind comes in on this scene, so can you make it come in earlier, harder, and get faster and stronger sooner or something? It's like, okay, and then you go down to the cutting room and try to find some sounds that work, get them transferred to mag in the transfer room, get the mag, put it down in your room, build some units, try them out, then bring five new units, which is what we called rolls of film in sync with the picture, uh, with those wind sounds, and then put them up. And sometimes they there weren't enough machines to hang those new tracks. or But, you know, you hang the tracks, you have to go back to the beginning of the reel, rewinding in maybe double time, and get to the head and lock the new ones on with their sync marks, and then go down, back down to the scene where the wind is, and then you have to remix it. It could take hours to have the tracks back to the stage, the mix stage. You know, you might be lucky and get the director or the picture editor or someone to come down to the cutting room and listen to them, but typically they would just wait for them to show up in the mix, and then maybe they didn't like it. Or maybe they did, and then you would put it in. But, you know, that that was very slow, elaborate, time-consuming, and expensive process. So, in 1992, Pro Tools had been released in 91. But going back, in fact, in 89, I was using a sampler. I was using an emulator to, to load sounds in and then perform them to the picture in my cutting room and record them over to tape. And then that would get transferred to MagFilm and hung as a unit in the mix. So that was the early digital sound design tool. So you could create pitch shifts in real time and so on that you couldn't do otherwise with the sampler. It was so great for that. But it had to go back to Mag to get in sync with the picture in the mix theater. So it was kind of a rudimentary beginning of digital being involved with sound in movies. By 92, Pro Tools existed, and, you know, there was Waveframe and SSL screen sound, and there was an early Diaxis model that we actually used on the show. I had Pro Tools working in my cutting room then, and I had the sampler. We had a Diaxis, and the music editor had an SSL screen sound, which was so cool. It had a light pen you know, it looked like the images from the 70s when people were working in yeah. labs, computer labs with light pens on CRT screens nice. and stuff. That's what she was using, Laurie Eschler, the music <sighs> editor. It was so cool. It had eight tracks and a hard disk for storing all the sound. And then it had a cutting thing, much like Pro Tools. So on the mix stage, knowing that David was going to want to be able to change things in the mix... For the very first time on any movie I worked on, we had brought the whole sampler thing up to the mix theater and set it up. I had a little workstation in the back with an emulator two or three, and then um, a bunch of <laughs> magneto-optical discs with sounds that we had created for the film that I could load into the sampler memory, which might have been, you know, a couple megabytes of RAM. And then we had sync coming into a Mac, which was running q sheet av which was from digidesign which is a sequencer that you could read the in and out times in feet and frames instead of bars beats and measures ah. so you know we could say at 300 feet there's a door slam so you could hit a key put the sequencer into record hit the key that has the door slam sound you want and then uh it would record into the sequencer and it would be at that footage then when you went back and played through it would play again during the mix, we would 
use the sampler and you could build up a bank of necessary sounds like winds and it took time you know it was not fast right but it was a lot faster than going to the yeah. tape library and taking them to the transfer room and getting them copied over to magnetic film yeah for sure so we did that i you know i was in charge of running the emulator on the stage and then you know we also had the dialogue was all cut on mag film and and i think the backgrounds we had done the backgrounds using the diaxis as a kind of experiment I don't think Pro Tools was ready for prime time exactly yet. I mean, it worked, but it crashed a lot. So we used the Diaxis, which was more reliable for cutting the backgrounds. I had an amazing team of people. Uh, Donnie Blank, that's his pen name. His name is Donnie Miele. So Donnie had written a program called Alchemy which was kind of like sound designer, but it was more powerful in manipulation of sounds in the computer. So you could do all kinds of weird manipulations and sound design work in the computer. And then it was good about sending sounds to the sampler. So you could have a library of sounds, you could play with them and then send them to the sampler and then play them back manually performing them or with QSheet programming them and then they would play back. So Donnie lived in San Francisco and he worked on the film as an apprentice sound editor and he did an amazing job. He designed the sound of the fan that is so signature to the film, you know, the one that goes whoop. So that was Donnie's big contribution to the sound design. It was so great. When my daughter was born during the mix, I had to leave for two days and Donnie took over running the emulator because he was all over that. And so he was great. And then Mark Vordikevich, who's now a well-known music editor, was the assistant. And Phil Benson, who went on to run Skywalker Sound, he was there as the another apprentice. That was his first sound job. So we had a, we had a really interesting crew. We had Terry Ecton was cutting dialogue, you know, who doesn't normally cut dialogue, but she did a great job. And Claire Freeman and... Uh, the Australian ADR editor who just arrived, Hugh Waddell. He handled all the editing of the backwards ADR, which was so much fun. Uh, anyway, those people, most of them were working on MAG, but the sound effects mostly were done digitally. And the benefit of that was that we didn't have to rely on the transfer room, except maybe to transfer finished pieces that we had done fixes in the cutting room and transferred to MAG so we could hang them rather than play them back on the emulator on the stage because it was busy doing other things that David was in the middle of working on. So it was a mixed thing, but mostly the real-time work was done with the emulator. So we cut, had cut sound for everything in the movie by the time we got to the mix. And David didn't throw it all away. We threw some of it away and we augmented it with new things a lot, a lot, a lot. So it was, a, it was the first time I had worked so much with digital in a mix. And it was with the sampler. It was still sampler-based. It was a couple more years from then. And the samplers were largely a thing of the past because they were more time-consuming than working in Pro Tools. Yeah. So we got into Pro Tools during that time of the early 90s. Yeah. And so they had their little glimmer of importance uh, <laughs> in film history. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of sound design work was done with samplers in that era, in the late 80s and early 90s. And I think there's some really interesting work. I mean, listening to the track of Firewalk With Me Now, I think there's some really wonderful things. Like if the music is doing a thing and you can kind of play the wind against the music in real time. And I've noticed a lot of places where things like that were happening in the sound effects. Yeah. Um, because we had a sampler and we could do that as easily as not. I mean, it's just that simple to do. So we did a lot of that for that film. So these technical hurdles, uh, did they impact the way that you approach the film creatively? You know, like if you had today's technology and resources when you were doing Firewalk With Me, would you have done the sound differently from a creative standpoint? Mm, I suspect that Dean and Ron had a similar experience, even with all the new technology to, th to what we did. In other words... I imagine that if we had, like nowadays, we cut and design and premix in the box and bring that to the mix. So David would have heard a more fully realized sound effects treatment for the film. 
But that would not stop him from wanting to put his own mark on it and make it more like his own vision of what it's so weird that we use the word vision for how he wanted to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he had, uh, you know, he wanted to explore the surreal, dreamlike, and horrific opportunities that sound could contribute to the film and, and to the max. Like he wanted that to be a huge part of the experience of watching the film and yeah. hearing it. So, you know, we had done, a, let's say, a fine job, but it wasn't exactly what he would have done. And so we started taking it apart and putting it back together from the first scene. And we carried on through the film. You know, we'd done a lot of sound creation, sound recording, sound design work, and it was all in there. And a lot of it was in the emulator. I don't think we made up a lot of new sounds during the mix. We kind of moved things around. So we worked with the library we had created to a large extent. You know, we weren't scrambling to make a lot of new sounds and a lot of new recordings during the mix, but I'm sure that happened somewhat, but, you know, like on every film. But it was mostly, I like the music. The music in the film is so amazing uh, because there's so many layers of music going on. He would find cues that he liked for a certain mood, and he could imagine them maybe being even better and weirder and more dreamlike if they were played backwards. So he would say to Laurie Eschler, the music editor, can you please play the music from Real Four in that scene, play it here only backwards, and on top of the music that's already there. And uh, she would say, okay, and then she'd go to the library on the drive and pull up the cue and tell the screen sound device to reverse it, which could take several minutes. For like a two-minute thing, it might take five minutes to make it reverse. <laughs> it was so slow. But it was, uh, maybe it wasn't quite that bad, but it was slow. And then she would put the thing together according to his thoughts and wishes at the moment while we were working on the scene. So the score had been cut according to plan, and then it was completely re- worked during the mix. Sometimes cues would be replaced, sometimes they would be abbreviated and taken over with other cues. Many, many times in the movie there are two or three or even four layers of different music, maybe different stems of music, but some backwards, some forwards. There's a lot of collages of found sound, like David just treated the score like it was, okay, I got this stuff, what am I going to do with it? And so he made up a whole new score from the elements that were there, sometimes proudly being themselves, like when we go to Twin Peaks and you hear the Twin Peaks theme loud and clear and things like that. But other scenes like the scene where they're inspecting under Teresa Banks' fingernail in the morgue. There's this really creepy music that's several layers of backwards and slowed down pieces from different score elements that were created for other parts of the movie. That's what I love about David Lynch films. You know, he's not afraid to get weird. <laughs> <laughs> he, took, he took a lot of really great risks. And I think that did a lot for people's view of how sound can be used in films and what we can do with sound. So what impact do you think that this film soundtrack had on our current approach to filmmaking and the way that we use sound in films today? Well, that's a really good question. I think it made a big impact on people who were interested in sound for film. So, like, even though the mainstream audiences for movies at the Saturday night at the movies kind of didn't flock to see Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me when it came out, but people who did see it who were into sound were blown away by it because it is so daring and so powerful in so many ways with music and sound and editorially, thematically, very powerful film, but not to everyone's taste. But film directors and other sound people all admire the film for all those reasons. Yeah. And a couple of directors I've worked with a few times since I did Twin Peaks, one of them hired me because I had worked on Twin Peaks and because he wanted to bring that kind of Lynchian sensibility to the film. And another, you know, also said that when these guys were friends at USC Film School, Matt Reeves and James Gray, they both saw the film when it came out while they were in film school, and they both loved it for all of its audacious techniques. It's like an expressionist film that is character-driven and full of emotion. 
and it feels like a powerful film for those reasons and a huge part that makes it so cinematic is because of the sound sucking you into a powerful dreamlike experience and so i think those guys and a lot of other directors have adopted a certain amount of that sensibility in their own work i don't attribute all of that to this one film's influence but i think it's it was a a powerful example of the kind of films that you could do with the technology and the distribution now with Dolby Stereo, you could have bigger dynamic range, a bigger frequency range. You had surround sound now. You could have all these things and you could use them to tell a story in a powerful way. So I think the time was right for a film like this to come out. And David was a visionary in film storytelling techniques. And he laid it all out on this film and in a way that people hadn't seen before, and I think it did have a big impact. People don't remake this movie, but there are movies that use sound in their own way quite extensively like this. In other words, the sound is part of the score. It's a, so much atmosphere, you know, winds that are very tonal and kind of driving the scene. And you've got all kinds of sound design as score in the film. People are still afraid to do that entirely because of the potential conflict with the actual score, which often comes on after the bulk of the sound design work is done. So people are afraid to use tonal sound effects very much in their sound design work. So these are issues that remain. And having David at the mix running the music and kind of directing the sound design work that we did. Obviously, having one mind in charge of both makes that a non-issue. The power of that, having that collaborative work, so that many times, hard to tell, I can't remember, you know, is that music or sound design? But it all works together. So that's a thing that has become popular in film language now. I mean, popular as in it's an avenue you can explore that may not have been as much in the past. So... All those things, I think, are partly because of Firewalk With Me, I would say. There's also the ease of doing changes and fixes during the mix. It was in the air, you know, this the whole digital transition that made that so much more possible. So now making fixes on the stage happens all the time. It's not a big deal at all because it's all virtual and you can change anything quickly. And so that trend started in that time frame and we were one of the pioneers of doing that, but that was bound to happen with or without Firewalk With Me, I would say. So, you know, just going back to taking risks and being creative with how score is used and how sound design and score work together, uh, I think another risk that he took with this film was with the level of sound. Mm. There's that club scene and the music completely drowns out like all the dialogue. That was a huge risk to take. Yeah. You know, if you think about all the big blockbuster movies from the late 80s and the early 90s, dialogue is front and center. Yeah. Uh, and then here we have this club scene and it's like, yeah, we're going to have the music loud and <laughs> intense and uh, you're just going to drown out all the dialogue, you know? Uh, it was so great. I love that scene. And the music is so perfect too. So when we got to that scene, David Lynch and David Parker were working on it and David Parker was doing the dialogue and he mixed the dialogue to the level, you know, if they're talking at a certain level, you don't want to crank it up so loud that it seems absurd. You, you have to stay within a certain range. You can't have whispering people played at 100 dB. Right. So, you know, he tried to make them as loud as possible given the environment. And then the idea was that David Lynch would play the music against that in a way that didn't harm the intelligibility of the dialogue. So, you know, once he'd made his pass and set the levels, he said, okay, David, like, put in the music. So the music went in and you couldn't understand a lot of the dialogue. So David Parker said, this is a problem. We got to turn down the music or we won't understand it. And David said, what if we use subtitles? <laughs> <laughs> then we could play the music as loud as we want, right? And he said, yeah, that's up to you. You're the director. You can put subtitles on there if you want. He said, that's what we're going to do. So, 
Literally, you said, "How loud can I play this music?" And okay, that's how loud it is. <laughs> nice. Because we, you know, we were working with Dolby Stereo, which is a, an optical track. It's analog, and it had a limit to how loud it could get, which was something like ninety something dB. Let's say I forget ninety two, ninety five, somewhere in that range is as loud as you can be. And the Dolby engineers, you know, come out and check everything and make sure you don't exceed the levels because then it fails it's sometimes not gracefully so until you go to the optical and play it back you don't know if it's going to work so he just played the music as loud as possible and the rest is history i guess so <laughs> yeah yeah uh well the music for that scene was so perfect though you know like you expect that to be loud. They're in a club and uh, there's a lot yeah. of music happening. Oh, it's transportive, that music. It makes you feel like you're really there and in that amazing, surreal, hyper-sexualized, transactional environment with all these weird people. And it's very surreal. And the tripping aspect, you kind of get into Donna's head and it's very strange and very powerful, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's exactly what a scene like that calls for. You know, and I feel like any other director besides David Lynch uh, may have felt the need to like play it safe, you know, so we could hear all of the dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> and it would have robbed that scene of its impact, I think. You know, I just, I yeah. love his bold choices. <laughs> totally. The big technical problem we had with Dolby Stereo in the movie was at the end where the wind comes in when she's being murdered. And then we go to the Red Room and the angel and the sort of synth organ music is playing. And there's a kind of a religious, spiritual, life after death vibe going on that's very tragic and very powerful and the that too was played as loud as possible and the wind sound passed muster with the Dolby engineer technically and it was sent to the lab where it gets transferred to optical and then when you play that back it was not okay it distorted and the they couldn't figure out why they'd never seen that before but it was because the tones in the wind sound were very pure sine waves around a certain frequency of maybe three or four hundred hertz or something and something about that frequency and those pure sounds even though they fell just within the range of what they thought normally would be technically acceptable this was like an outlying sound case where it wasn't acceptable the device that makes the optical get brighter and darker on the track couldn't keep up with it somehow and it distorted so we had to remix that lower so it would translate to optical so we got david back for that <laughs> And was he disappointed that it couldn't be at the volume that he oh, wanted? Oh, yeah. But, you know, everyone is very disappointed when the technology can't do what you want it to do. But you kind of have to live within that. And there, there was another interesting story about the ending. You know, once he decided that he was going to take out the sort of violent ending and put in this spiritual, religious kind of ending... He found a piece of music, which was Cherubini's Requiem in C, conducted by Riccardo Muti, who's still an active and quite famous conductor. So he had this recording and he decided this is what's going to go in there. And then they tried to get the rights and Muti said, I never let my music be in a movie. It degrades it. Mm. So Lynch had to somehow make a direct appeal to Muti and explain to him what he was doing and why it was so important. And Muti relented. But there was touch and go there because Lynch couldn't imagine any other piece of music being there. That was outside the scope of the mix per se, but it happened while we were mixing. Wow. What a change from filmmaking today, right? I mean, like lots of composers are like, yes, use my music in your films and or games and TV <laughs> shows. <laughs> yes. I mean, for a composer to say like, you know, oh, oh no, you know, that would degrade the quality of my music, like, wow. Yes, I, <laughs> my music is above cinema. I don't want it tarnished. <laughs> yes, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> I know. So um, so I guess there's just one more scene that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, it's 
the scene in which Lara and her father Leland are being pursued by this truck and it's driving erratically behind them. Uh, you know, the driver's doing a lot of honking and then uh, drives around the tractor trailer and like pulls up beside them and he's yelling and uh, Leland and Lara are screaming. So the sounds here, right? It just creates this cacophony, this like wonderfully unsettling sound and you feel so disturbed. Um, how did you develop the sound of the scene and the unique musical sound design here? Well, that is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's so central to the story and it's so powerful sonically. So the one-armed man is driving in a Chinook, I think it was called, uh, which is the camper van. Uh, it's like a mini pickup with a little camper on it that was called a Chinook. And for some reason, David had him driving a Chinook uh, up behind the Chevy Caprice convertible that they're driving. And it's incredibly tense because the father recognizes the one-armed man because they both uh, inhabit the red room sometimes where evil is hatched. And so he knows him and he knows that this is not good, that this guy who's trying to stop him from whatever his plans are. So when the guy is honking, all the sounds in there, the sound effects are played to be as intense as possible. The revving of the engine and stuff Leland keeps revving his engine and honking his horn so that Laura can't hear what the one-armed man is shouting at them. He's trying to drown him out, and he's really upset. And she's, of course, extremely upset like because she can hear him. So the sound effects are creating this cacophony already, and the shouting voices, they're all shouting, all three of them. And then the music, which is the same musical elements that were in the scene with the fingernail. There's some backwards uh, little guitar sound, kind of things, little niggly little kind of sounds. And then you have various other sounds that are probably stems from other cues that had been used earlier in the film to identify some kind of bleed from the red room space into the real world. Probably by the time we got to that scene, which is late in the movie, David had probably worked out the vocabulary of those elements from the earlier scenes, which came up first because we mixed in order. So I'm guessing that he wanted to recreate those tones, but instead of being over this very quiet scene in the morgue where they're listening to these very quiet little cracking sounds of the fingernail and the tweezers, in this case, it's like really loud sounds that it's over. So the whole scene is louder and the music is more powerful. It's like it's all coming through. It's finally bursting through and whatever that is, it's happening here and it's so intense and I think we all just kind of went for it. A friend of mine who had a big Buick, you know, with the same kind of car from General Motors. It was the same vintage, the same engine. So we just revved the shit out of that thing. Uh, it was pretty intense. And then we had all the other sounds that are going on. And then the shouting. I mean, even without the music, it probably would be very unsettling and cacophonous. But the music is what pushes it into that kind of magical realm of this red room, other world, bursting through into the real world. That is the cause of all of Laura's suffering. And it's happening most powerfully here in the movie until the end when it's fatal. Uh, so I just have one final question for you, Doug. Was there anything you learned on Fire Walk With Me that shaped you as a sound designer, like that, you know, influenced the way that you see the role of sound in filmmaking or impacted your personal approach or your philosophy for sound design? Absolutely. I mean, it was transformative for me as a sound designer. As I said on Twin Peaks, the pilot, I had worked with David and he contributed some interesting things during the mix to that. But mostly he gave us notes. We executed the notes. We put them in and we were done. And this film, we composed and crafted the sound design for the film together with the music in the mix with the director in a way that was the most creative possible approach to working with sound. And I have tried since then to recreate that experience on every film I work on. 
which I didn't really know was possible before. It seemed more cut and dried, like you have to, you sit there and the director sits over there and the music is that and everybody has their place and you don't speak up unless there's a need and everybody does what they're supposed to do. And you'd end up with something that's, you know, it can be very well crafted, but it's not necessarily breaking new ground creatively or necessarily the best soundtrack for that film to help it tell its story. But I think as most people would acknowledge, the impetus for pulling all those strands together really has to come from the director. And it has to start before the film is shot, even like as Randy Tom is very fond of saying, you know, you have to go into the movie knowing that sound will play a big role in telling the story so that you shoot it accordingly. You don't have people explain in words what's happening. You leave gaps and you create moods and tell the story with sound, which can be much more visceral and powerful and elemental. So for certain kinds of emotions, having an approach where sound can be used in that kind of, I said earlier, musical way, but it's kind of an expressionistic way. Like, you can accept that there is wind in a location, but when the wind is like this powerful, tonal, distorted wind, which is so expressionistic and emotional, you can have that. People will accept it. And I learned on Firewalk With Me that you can really go to the limit and beyond. And it can be good. You know, you don't have to hold back and be tasteful uh, and stick to the codes of the medium. You can break them, and you can push them, and you can bend them, and you can mold them to the needs of this particular story you're working on now. So that's a big lesson, and it's taken me a long time to be able to kind of bring that. But I've, I tried to bring that to the films I've worked on. Awesome. Well, Doug, thank you so much for having this talk with me about The Sound of Firewalk with me. Uh, it's been really fascinating to learn about your work on this film. And it's such an interesting film, you know, and I think it's pushed the boundaries of how sound is used in filmmaking. And so I'm so glad that whatever panned reviews it had initially have, you know, sort of rolled off of it uh, by now. Yeah, I think it's gone up in people's estimation since then, for sure. That's great. Thank you, Jenny. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you about the film and, uh, yeah, to think about it again. And I hope David makes another feature film and uh, it would be so much fun to see what he's up to now. Yeah, right. Especially with today's technology. I mean, David Lynch in Atmos. Oh, you know? God, yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, he's uh, he's gotten into music in a big way, and he's teased the idea of doing another Twin Peaks. Really? I don't know about movies. I haven't been in touch with him since around the time of Lost Highway, which is another amazing sound design job. And when that comes up, you'll have to talk to Dean again about that, the 30-year anniversary of Lost Highway. That's a powerful film. So, anyway, thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Doug. Have a good one. A big thanks to Doug Murray for sharing the story behind the sound of Firewalk With Me and Twin Peaks, to Jennifer Walden for the interview, to Peter Albrechtson for some additional questions, and to Christian Halsker for the sound library highlights. Want more film sound-related stories and resources? Visit asoundeffect.com forward slash filmsound. And if you're looking for game audio resources, hop on to asoundeffect.com forward slash game audio. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. That's it for this episode. Thanks a lot for listening and see you next time. Take care. Take care.